You're listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast, exploring the rich, flavorful history of Manitoba food and the people who make it, sell it, and eat it. From the packing table to the dinner table, from restaurant specials to grandma's secret recipes, we consider the cultural, social, and commercial aspects of Manitoba food and what it means to us. I'm your host, Kent Davies. As per usual, I'm joined by Manitoba business historian, Professor Janice Thiessen. Hey Kent, what's in the pantry for us today? Today's episode's all about candy, Janice. Candy? Are you a fan of candy? No. No? No. Really? Yes. I thought you loved all foods. I, you know, if I have a choice, I will take fat and salt over uh-huh. sweet yeah. any day of the week. I'm kind of the same. But when I was a kid, I mean, it was it was a whole different story. I love the pixie sticks. I love the, the jujubes, the gummy bears, sour soothers. Those were my favorites. Oh, not me. I would have pickled beets for dessert. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, you might not be a fan of candy, but you're certainly probably a fan of the stories of the candy industry. And we have two segments we're going to hear today by you Winnipeg students, one that explores the complexities of the candy business, focusing on a specific favorite Manitoba treat, while the other investigates the gender dynamics of candy making. Sounds good. But first, I thought we'd give listeners some added context. Many people don't know just how many candy businesses operated in Winnipeg at one time. It was a tremendously booming industry. And one person who remembers this is Clarence Gould. He spent 60 years with Cavalier Candy, a business that is still going strong since 1922. So one of the longest running candy businesses, I believe, in this country. In an interview with Sarah Story for the Canadian Snack Foods Project, Gould talks about all the candy makers back in the 1950s when he started for Cavalier. When when I started, there was uh, Galpern Candy, there was Progress Candy that was no, is no longer, mm-hmm. there was Consolidated Candy that is no longer, there was Pollen Chambers, there was Alkin Candy, and then there was another one uh, called Wineshanker, and then if you went down on Portage Avenue, there was uh, there was a florist shop called Grandma's. And they sold, they made candy and sold, sold flowers and candy together. Then the Eaton's had their own candy plant in the mail order building. Okay. And, and then you had Picardi's. So, yeah, the candy business was booming in Winnipeg back in the 50s. For sure. One of the interesting things to me about the candy industry is that the techniques of production have, in, in so many ways, remained unchanged for literally centuries. And so it was the kind of business that someone could go into, even in their own home. Um, So very low barrier to entry. And that means then that for a period of time in Winnipeg, there were just scores of candy makers. But of course, you know, as many industries do, the candy making business changed over time. Uh, Gould tells us in the 50s, all the candy manufacturers would sell to anyone. Uh, Big department stores, little stores in rural Manitoba. You know, they had basically sales teams going out everywhere. But as time went on, you know, it became kind of an either-or situation where candy companies would go for bigger contracts and large retail chain outfits. And according to Gould and and others that you talked to uh, with this project, both approaches had their challenges. You, You had a lot of different people you could sell. There was a lot of little stores, you know. Oh, okay. You could sell to, and some of them had their own little people that dealt with them. When you're competing for orders, you know, and there was price cutting. I used to say they used to all get together, and then one of them 
decide they wanted the order work better than the other one. And, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's just a thing in business, eh? Yeah. But we used to make, uh, there was a big business with uh, Woolworth in those oh, days, okay. you know. Yeah. Yeah, in Woolworth right across Canada, you know. Yeah. And there was big business with Hudson Bay. Oh. Hudson Bay had all the northern stores, you know. So, so there was a lot more, and then you had Zellers, and you had Kresge's, and you had Metropolitan, and we could sell every little store around. We had uh, salesmen on the road, you know, covering Manitoba, salesmen covering Alberta, places like uh, Five and Dollar stores, and Penner's and Steinbach, mm -hmm. and uh, Winkler Co-op. You know, you there wasn't the restriction on who would buy from you in those days. So there's restrictions. Now, more if you want to do two things, you can't afford to to deliver to small stores because the cost of delivering is too much. And a lot of the big stores now, everything has to go through the head office. If it's not okayed by the head office, you don't get in. Okay. You know. We heard about this from Roy Robertson of Robertson's Candy in Nova Scotia. He talked about going after smaller specialty shops when Zellers went out of business because they weren't beholden to large contracts that would put them in financial straits or add pressure to deliver. Like I always say that, the, that in, in business, it's one thing to have the business and promise the business, the other thing is to deliver. Like I, I've had people who have been in competition, uh, they would quote prices a way lower than me, they would get the business, but they never delivered the product. And I said, I can give it away for nothing if I don't have to deliver it. That, and, and you know, but a lot of people do that. That's like a lot of big companies call it market practices. You know, well, we can do you better than you know that and stuff. But then they don't ship it. So we try to, I would say, more of a personal thing that that it's it's a one-on-one -on -one type of thing. Like we uh, try to treat like, or, or I would like to do business with every individual private candy store sell them a little rather than selling like Walmart. I mean like Walmart is great um, but then like after you're so busy they own you and then then you, it, you you know like you either play by their rules or you're out of the game. But I mean one of the big changes that also happened over time was globalization of the candy industry which made it possible for local manufacturers not having to rely on local markets to keep going. They could they could sell to everybody. And, you know, one of the things that Cavalier does now that it didn't long ago, or many businesses for that matter, is sell large portions of their candy to the American markets. We have a trade build up. We, we do a lot of American trade. You know, we ship to New York and Chicago. Mm -hmm. and, uh, one of our biggest customers are the United States. Gould really credits the survival of Cavalier Candy to modernizing the company. Former owner Charles Fletcher basically revolutionized the process of candy manufacturing in Winnipeg by purchasing new machinery at a time when everything was done by hand. I think we have survived because of the different people like Walter's dad getting new machinery and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and Walter the same thing. Mm -hmm. you, if you want to survive in this world, you've got to keep moving forward. Part of the change in the industry too was brought about by improvements in refrigeration and air conditioning. One of the limitations on candy making was you can't do it when it's too warm or too humid out. And so there were only certain parts of the country where you could actually make candy year-round as a result. But with those innovations in technology, it meant that 
all sorts of folks could now go into candy production. Right. We heard from Robertson there. Well, again, that was one of the big changes they had for their company was dehumidifier type machinery or something like that that allowed them to make candy at certain times in the summer so they'd be ready for, you know, Christmas time is when they basically make a lot of their money that carries over for the next year. For sure. So now that Clarence Gould has helped us provide an overview of Cavalier Candy and the candy industry of Manitoba, we can turn it over to business history student Scott Mayer, who's going to tell us about another Manitoban candy company made famous from a very specific tasty treat. One that you love that might not be candy, but still, it's fantastic. Yes, that's right. The company is Pollens, and they do make what has been one of my favorite snacks, the Cuban Lunch. Let's have a listen. Chocolate and peanuts. Is there a better combo out there? Well, it depends on who you ask. I, for one, might say cheese and crackers or french fries and vinegar. But if you asked a group of Manitobans over the age of 50, odds are many of them would stand by the classic pairing citing the Cuban lunch bar as their reason why. Cuban lunch bar, you ask? I was also unfamiliar with this treat until my mom overheard the words spoken aloud by former Pollens employee David Ingram, who discussed his work experiences with professor and food history buff Janice Thiessen. Another job I had there was stirring chocolate because the Cuban lunch and snap lunch bars were... Uh, the Cuban lunch had peanuts in them, and of course the peanuts sunk to the bottom of the chocolate, so I had to stir those so that the peanuts would be equally distributed in the bars. I mean, my mom could hardly hold back her excitement upon hearing that long-forgotten name. Oh my god, Cuban lunch bars? Those are my favorite. In fact, this Winnipeg native treat, rich with chocolate and peanuts and packaged in what Thiessen explains as a shallow, rectangular equivalent of a cupcake liner, has a fan base that reaches much farther than just my home. Blog pages, YouTube videos, and even Facebook groups with hundreds of members have been created to discuss, debate, and most importantly connect over the memories of the deeply missed treat. So where did this chocolate bar come from and what made it so special? Well, the answer lies alongside the fascinating history of the Pollens factory. Let's start by going a few years back, and by a few years I mean over 100 years, to 1876, the year the Chamber Steam Biscuit Factory was founded. By starting here, we can discover how Pollens came to be, why it grew in popularity, what went on behind its doors, and what eventually halted its operations after more than a century. In 1876, the Chamber Steam Biscuit Factory was founded at 158 Main Street in Winnipeg, Manitoba by John H. Chambers, who originally came from Peterborough, Ontario. Over the course of the next few years, Chambers would relocate his business several times within the city and even face a devastating factory fire, which completely gutted the interior of his establishment. Within that same time frame, another baker, W.H. Pollen, had opened up a competing bakery just down the street. The two bakers decided to join forces on Ross Avenue, merging their companies in 1884 and incorporating as the Pollen Chambers Factory, or as most people called it, Pollens, in 1899. Chambers' string of bad luck would be broken, as his new joint venture with Pollen would see substantial growth over the next three decades. One aid to their success might have been their lack of competitors. Being the first biscuit maker and confectioner in Western Canada, the Pollen Chambers company had little competition, at least in the beginning. Another reason for their quick growth could have been their timing. According to Murray Peterson, a heritage officer from Winnipeg, 
Poland's opened directly after an economic boom which was triggered by the province's railway construction. Regardless of the reason why, the fact was Poland's was doing well. Very well. Thiessen's book Snacks tells us that by the 1930s, Poland's was making 70 different types of biscuits and 200 kinds of confectionery, employing 200 people. This was no small operation. Pollen Chambers warehouses were scattered across the country, and the factory had been expanded to six stories, with different, exciting treats being made on each floor. David Ingram, who worked at Pollen's as a teen, shared some of the jobs he, and presumably many of the other Pollen's employees, performed during their time at the factory. Uh, I guess I also had a job in, a, in a, one of the candy rooms, uh, throwing sugar on spearmint leaf candies, and sugar on uh, spearmints. Another job I had there was pulling toffee or caramels for those yucky Halloween candies, the orange-wrapped ones that we all hate. Yes. (laughs) But uh, yeah, doing those. All sorts of other treats were being made at the factory too, such as Christmas candy, jujubes, toasted marshmallows, and hard candies. For many people looking in, working at the Pollen Chambers factory seemed like a dream job. I mean, who wouldn't want to work in a candy factory? And for the most part, employees truly were happy working at Pollen's. Despite not allowing employees to organize a formal union, Pollens still did a lot for their staff. Christmas and Thanksgiving meals were an annual treat, along with fishing trips, free restaurant meals, and complimentary Christmas cookies during the holiday season. They even paid above the industrial average, with employees earning between $10 and $14 an hour. But not all employees shared in the positive experience. When blogging about her time working at Pollens, a former employee by the name of Joan wrote that it was hell. The realities of working in mass production were not necessarily as rewarding or joyful as they may have seemed, even if what was being produced were sweet treats. Even David Ingram remembered having to keep up with the machines decades after he was employed. Yeah, when it came to the ones that were turning over cornstarch that was the machine as quickly as you could put in the trays of cornstarch that they took them away. When I was doing the caramels, it was very, very quite, well, I, th- I thought it was fairly automated that the machines did a lot of that. Um, and with the chocolate, uh, no, it was the machines doing that too, and I just had to make sure I kept up with them. What couldn't keep up, as the years went by, were small, privately owned businesses and factories. Although there were 194 confectionery plants in production across Canada in 1961, by the end of the century there were only 94 left operating. This was caused by what the Canadian Encyclopedia explains as the steady phasing out of smaller, obsolete production facilities and their replacement with fewer, larger, highly efficient operations. Author and historian David Carr writes in his book Candy Making Canada that the leading eight companies in the confectionery industry produce close to 87% of the value of shipments. Successful companies such as Pollens were no match against national retail chains who effectively controlled shelf space across the country. Grocery retailers needed to save money and therefore moved away from manufacturers such as Pollens, leading to their eventual demise. After successfully operating and bringing joy to countless families for over 100 years, the Pollen Chambers factory finally closed their iconic doors in 1991. While their doors remain closed, the memories of Pollens are not forgotten. The legacy of the Pollen Chambers factory lives on both in the physical and social spheres. The historic building still stands in Winnipeg's Exchange District today and has been used to house city records for the last couple of decades. However, talks of redevelopment have been floating around over the past few years as a Winnipeg development agency called Center Venture has reportedly put the building up for sale in hopes of commercial redevelopment. 
Regardless of the physical space's future, people will never forget their fond memories of Pollen's treats. As David Carr explains in his book, the penny candy culture is about more than candy. It is childhood memories of bike rides on lazy summer afternoons to invade the corner store in some distant neighborhood. No closure, redevelopment, or mega retail chain can ever take away those memories. If after hearing all this, you too are yearning for a healthy dose of Pollen's nostalgia, you're in luck. The Cuban lunch bar has made a mighty return. Yes, you heard that right. It might not be the original, but Crystal Regeer Westergaard has made sure her recreation of the bar is as close to accurate as she can get it. It all started when she wanted to find a way to cheer up her 85-year-old mother. Crystal started making homemade batches of the chocolate bar, which were her mom's favorite. Her recreation ended up being so good that she decided to buy the trademark and sell them on a bigger scale. The bars, which are currently being sold in select provinces across the country, have been flying off the shelves, outselling popular bars like Kit Kat and local grocery stores. Even if the flavor isn't an exact match, it's the feeling that comes with eating the Cuban lunch bar that counts. And this special feeling is one that continues to unite Winnipeggers, Manitobans, and Canadians to this day. So Janice, are you hungry for Cuban lunch now? Always. Cuban lunch is something that I grew up with. It was one of my father's favorites. Yeah, I thought so. Uh, These stories that we tell about candy, other food items, aren't just about those foods, of course. They are broader stories about working in factories in the post-industrial era, for example. Totally. And uh, one of the things that struck me while I was reviewing this particular series was... Every factory had different policies. Some had unions, some didn't have unions, some had different approaches to grievances, or some had um, really great social aspects to the company. They would have parties, they would, you know, treat their employees to like free candy if need be. And some had really interesting labor practices that I don't think would possibly work today. Um, For instance, Pollens used numbers for workers instead of names. And while former worker Linda Howdle fondly remembers her time as a packer at Pollens, she loved her coworkers, she loved working there, but she still admits it was was kind of a weird practice. But we weren't known as people. Well, we had numbers. Like, I was 256. I could still oh. tell you some of the people that I worked with, you know, they would, when, your sh- when your schedule was done, they would say 270 is here, 271, 236, then, you know. I mean, it made sense in terms of keeping track of the piecework that was done by employees, but it was also kind of dehumanizing at the same time. For sure. <laughs> piecework was a major factor in the candy industry at the time, as was the topic of our next segment. Do you want to introduce it, Janice? Our next segment by business history student Matthew Frank investigates how labor practices in most candy factories were essentially divided along gender lines. It's a really interesting time period in post-war Canada when labor shortages brought about more women workers for specific jobs. All right, let's have a listen to Matthew Frank's segment, An Uphill Climb, Gender Segregation Within the Canadian Candy Industry. Picture this, the year is 1945, and World War II has just ended. It's VE, or Victory in Europe Day, and you're a woman manufacturing munitions. You stepped up when the call was put out for workers to fill the roles of men who went off to fight. 
You stepped up to do your part during the war, to serve your country. You stepped up to make the bullets the soldiers would shoot, the tanks they would drive, and the planes they would fly. You worked yourself to the bone, shedding sweat and blood to make sure Canada didn't fall to the enemy. And now, it's all over. The war has been won, and you helped win it through your hard work. Work that was seen just as valuable as the work of the soldiers across the ocean. You proved that you could do the same work as men, and do it just as good. Now, with that in mind, take a couple seconds and imagine what might come next. Don't worry, I'll wait. Did you imagine this? Mainly. Yes, all men to candy makers. Do you know why? Yeah, because it was a lot of lifting. Oh, okay. Sugar in those days were not not 40 kilos. There was no such thing. We were all working with pounds. Yeah. And sugar was 100 pound bag. Wait a second. That's not the progress that Rosie the Riveter suggested. Don't worry, I was just as stumped too. Just as quickly as women began to work the same jobs as men, things seemed to return to the way they were before the war, like nothing ever happened. It raises a few questions. Was there even any progress made for expanding the work of women during the war? And if not, what continued to cause the deep gender divides in work within the candy industry? To answer these questions, we are going to back up and look at the circumstances for why women were brought into the workforce and how women were viewed within Canada during the war and in its aftermath. I'm Matt Frank, and let's dive deeper. When Canada entered World War II, the effects of the Great Depression were still wreaking havoc across the country and the unemployment rate was at unseen levels. Over 900,000 men were unemployed out of 3.8 million working age men in Canada. The need for soldiers provided a quick solution to the high unemployment levels through funneling fighting age men into the Canadian military. Sure, unemployment problem was solved, but at the same time, the need for fighting age men eventually caused nationwide labor shortages. With the federal government needing to keep its war economy wheel spinning, it turned to the next possible labor force, Canadian women. Canadian women were viewed as a labor reserve force that the government could dip into when the country headed toward dire straits. It wasn't so much about wanting to bring women into the workforce, but it was just simply a necessity to keep the country functioning and fighting. The idea of calling upon women to work when it was only absolutely necessary also existed within the candy industry. In the case of Gagnon Bros, Women were hired for short seasonal work during busy seasons and when large orders were expected. Soon after these busy periods were finished and factory work slowed down, the women were released and sent back home to carry on with their womanly duties. A flurry of aggressive and persuasive propaganda and labor recruitment campaigns were commissioned by the federally mandated National Selection Service, which was founded in 1942. The goals of these campaigns were to instill a patriotic duty for women to do their part to help the boys beat the Nazis, and to highlight the importance of their work. This campaign could be easily misunderstood as female empowerment, and as progress for women's rights. The reality was simply that the government just saw women as the next exploitable workforce. Women never gained the right to work, jobs previously held by men. They were just obligated to do so. The NSS's propaganda was used to show that every Canadian woman was expected to do their fair share of work to support the war effort. The NSS prioritized the hiring of young single women as they were not dependent on childcare, 
and they could put their domestic duties aside to work full-time. Once the NSS exhausted that labor pool, they moved on to married women as their next demographic, even providing part-time work and childcare so that the maximum amount of women could work. At the height of the war, over 250,000 women worked in war industries. Much like the NSS, candy factories saw single women to be the most capable workforce for employment when extra laborers were needed. At Gingambros, almost all of the women who were initially employed were single women. As employment shortages continued, the factory turned to married women to supplement its workforce, with the number of married women working in the factory swelling to 40% of the total women employed in 1945. As victory was coming into view, the federal government and Canadian companies were preparing for the post-war economy. There were significant fears of another depression and another wave of unemployment floating around the halls of parliament. It was seen to be a priority to ensure that veterans were able to come back to the jobs that they once had. However, there was also a presiding feeling that Canadian women would stay involved in the workforce, just not in the same jobs as men. To address this new reality, the federal government under Prime Minister Mackenzie King created the subcommittee on the post-war problems of women. This committee was mandated to look at how women will integrate permanently into the workforce, but all of the committee's suggestions were sabotaged by government bureaucracy and there really never was any real desire to have progressive reforms for women in the workforce. Even Prime Minister King held very traditional views of women, saying in his diary, I spoke to H.E., the Governor General, about the organization of women for war work. Felt very strongly that a man should be at the head of the work. This mindset was very typical of the time, with a common opinion that women who stayed home were the reason for healthy children and healthy families, with the men being the primary breadwinners. As quickly as women were ushered into the labor force, they were forced out of it once the war ended. Married women were encouraged to leave the workforce to start families, funding was cut for childcare, tax breaks were denied for married women who worked, and government campaigns recommended the preferential hiring of returning veterans over women. Despite these efforts and ideals within post-war Canada, women stayed a fixture within the workforce. The new consumer-centered economy saw many married women work to supplement their husbands' wages. Despite this, most of the women working had to defend their need to work and their absence from their domestic duties by stating it was necessary for them to support their families. Jobs were available for women, but they were limited to just clerical, domestic, and factory work. The candy industry was a large employer of women within post-war Canada. When wartime labor shortages hit the factories, many candy factories turned to single and married women to fill the gaps left by men. Much of the candy industry was still struggling with a strict rationing of sugar despite the high demand of chocolate after the war. Even though there were struggles within the candy industry, production persisted with candy mainstays like Gagnon Bros and Moors expanding their operations. This expansion and the return of men to the workforce brought with them greater gender divisions in labor and a return to pre-war norms. Much of the work within the candy factories was divided along gender lines. The gender lines were influenced by five different factors. One, operating patterns were already established when there was a smaller, mainly male workforce. Two, women's employment was seen as less important to their domestic roles. Three, jobs that paid better and had more opportunities should always go to men. Four, since production was seasonal, large numbers of workers were needed for short periods. And five, the dominant management styles at the time were very conservative and very traditional. At Gagnon the average wage for men was almost 50% more than what women earned. Factory owners explained the lesser pay by pinning it on the women's family responsibilities, absenteeism, lack of supervisor skills, not having more technical skills, 
temporary positions, and being too emotional. The majority of jobs within the candy factories were split between skilled and unskilled work. Predictably, the skilled work, like candy making and apprenticing, was exclusively for the men, while decorating, packing, and weighing candy was left for the women. If men and women did do the same jobs, that work was usually seen to be less significant. Women had almost zero opportunities for promotion, while men could theoretically start at entry-level positions like a gopher and work their way up to the highest positions like candy maker. The action of candy factories hiring women for cheap work went against the post-war ideals of women sticking to their domestic roles as child raiser and homemaker, while men were the primary breadwinners. When men were surveyed about their wives working outside of the home, they replied saying that their masculinity and pride would be damaged. They justified it saying that history has always had the man being the breadwinner and the woman at home, and that's just the way it's always been. Many working men even saw it ridiculous for women to do physical labor, and that their femininity would be in danger if they worked too hard. While working at Winnipeg-based Scott Bathgate and Nutty Club, Linda Dewey lasted only a summer and had no intention to go back to the job. She described the state of women's work at the candy factory as such. It didn't pay anything for starters, but it was, it was just it was kind of an awful job. It was boring and it was hot and it, you know, was smelly and, and not a bad smell, but just, you know, the same mm-hmm. kind of thing. It just wasn't, I mean, for a summer it was fine, but I had no desire to, to do it for any longer than I did it. You know, I didn't, I didn't get up every morning and think, oh God, I have to do this again, but... On the other hand, there was certainly nothing that would have enticed me to go back again, so. Even though women played a crucial role in the war effort for Canada, the cognitive dissonance of post-war Canada pushed women out of that role, so society didn't have to worry about them. Much like the Greek myth of Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, the moment that women saw that progress and meaningful change was within reach, the boulder rolled back on them, and post-war Canada forced a return to pre-war values. Women have proven themselves in every industry, including the candy industry here in Winnipeg, but they were pigeonholed and restricted in the jobs that they could have, despite proving their abilities. One critic perfectly summarized the feelings after the war. Well, girls, you've done a nice job. Looked very cute in your overalls, and we appreciate what you've done for us. But just run along. Go home. We can get along without you very nicely. You've been listening to Preserves, a Manitoba food history podcast. Produced by myself, Kent Davies. Hosted by myself and Janice Thiessen. Written and narrated by Scott Mayer and Matthew Frank. Interviews by Janice Thiessen, Sarah Story, Elizabeth Ann Johnson, and Sarah Riley. Kimberly Moore creates the photos and images that accompany each podcast. Our theme music is by Robert Kenning. Preserves is recorded at the University of Winnipeg Oral History Center. You can check out the OHC and the work that we do at oralhistorycenter.ca. For more Manitoba Food History Project content, information, and events, go to manitobafoodhistory.ca. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. If you have a Manitoba food story and you want to share it with us, contact us by clicking on the contact link on our website. Preserves is made possible from a grant from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Thanks for listening.